Welcome to our weekly and Episcopal Sermon podcast. We are so glad you found us. This is a live recording of the gospel reading and sermon from last Sunday's service at the Episcopal Church in Almaden. The life of this podcast depends on your listening support. If you enjoy our podcast and would like to support us, simply subscribe to this podcast on your channel of choice. Come, join us along our shared path for today's episode. Of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to John. Glory to you, Lord Christ. When it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. But if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. But Thomas, who was a twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands, and put my finger in the mark of the nails, and on his side I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house. Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have come to believe. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples. They are not written in this book. But these were written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing in him, you may have life. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Come, Holy Spirit, and give us that mysterious rapport of speaking and listening, that what is said and what is heard may be useful to your kingdom for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, this time last Sunday, the world was filled with all sorts of comments and thoughts about Jesus as a result of it having been Easter. And I was surprised to find talk about Jesus in a very surprising place. The Wall Street Journal, (laughs) the Wall Street Journal, weekend edition, entitled, Our Many Jesuses. Our Many Jesuses. A very interesting uh, reading it was because, as you can see, I've marked it all over with yellow marking to tell what I could use and what I couldn't use in a sermon for the following Sunday. So here I am. (laughs) 
using the Wall Street Journal. Who would have thought? The title, the title of this particular article was called Our Many Jesuses. Our Many Jesuses. And uh, I extend this day to this season because I am going to share with you what uh, the author has to say about the fact that there appear to be many Jesuses. And so to quote uh, from the article, but not its entirety for goodness sakes, Easter is the peak of time for searching for Jesus, according to the Google Trends website, which measures the popularity of online inquiries. The reason seems to have come from a pair of unusual ads that ran during the Super Bowl telecast. This is getting more and more obscure. Both of these ads ended with a slogan, He gets us, all of us. Have you seen the ads, He gets us, all of us? Oh, good, that's fine. The ads are part of a series that started on television and outlined the previous March and will continue to run with new installments at least until March 2025. Well, the world is going to get a lot of, he gets us, all of us, won't they? It plans to spend a billion dollars on this effort. I wonder who spent a billion dollars to advertise the possibility that Jesus gets us, all of us. This campaign, the Jesus Gets Us campaign, promotes Jesus as the answer to polarization in American society has become itself the subject of a That's why uh, this attempt to find unity in Jesus getting all of us has met with controversy. Nothing reflects the social divisions targeted by He Gets Us in the competing and sometimes clashing versions of the Jesus espoused by different parts of the American society. So different parts of society have different Jesuses, not news. The variety of portraits of Jesus is practically as old as Christianity itself, starting with the four accounts of his life presented in the Bible. The differing Gospels give you different versions of Jesus, so it began with the beginning, didn't it? We put them together for ourselves because no one's Jesus is going to be like Someone else's Jesus. I think I'll read that again. No one's Jesus is going to be like someone else's Jesus. And then the article continues on. Of course, it begins with Thomas Jefferson, who made his own Bible by cutting out the parts of Jesus that were reasonable. That's a good thing for him to have done. Then comes along the 40s counterculture, where Jesus is a part of the counterculture. Then comes along Pope Francis, You've heard of his Jesus. Then there is a person who is a founder of modern business who talks about an executive, an advertising executive who describes Jesus as the founder of modern business. That's interesting. And then comes the prosperity gospel. Are you prospering? <laughs> I don't like that one at all. But it's a prosperity gospel that those who follow Jesus are bound to have a better return on their investments than others. And then, of course, the Left Behind series of books of several years ago where Jesus was said to be a warrior. And then we have uh, the conclusion of the article, which I think is interesting. For Christian Smith, a professor of sociology 
at Notre Dame, the proliferation of rival ideas of what Jesus stands for feeds into the pluralistic subjectivity, subjectivity, a relativistic understanding of religion that prevails contemporary Americans today. So Jesus is not so much a unifier as he's a disruptor. That's not new. And finally, under the heading, our many Jesuses, the subheading, at a time of shrinking church membership, I know about that, Jesus remains a uniquely popular and powerful figure in American culture. The great divide is over what he stands for and not what he has in common with us all. And so, so much for he gets us, doesn't he? Because it appears to me from the article that what can be said about Jesus is far more divisive than it is unifying. The big question for Easter, of course, is not the things that Jesus did, what he stood for, not so much as whatever on earth happened to him. Whatever on earth happened to Jesus. And I'm going to spend a little time today talking about what I think happened to Jesus. Mm -hmm. Not many clergy are this daring indeed, because I have spent a good part of my ministry trying to come to terms with my engineering reason and my spiritual call to ordination. What on earth could have happened to Jesus being said in a way that is good enough for people to live today? Are you listening? This you may not have heard before, but I've worked on it for a good part of my 50-plus years of ordination. It's not what he stood for. It's what happened to him. The first reading from the Acts of the Apostles seems to answer what happened to him. God raised him up, having freed him from death. So what happened to him, he was raised up. Secondly, the same uh, quotation from Scripture says, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. And so Easter is about, and even the second Sunday of Easter is about, God raised him up. What on earth did God raise Jesus up about? And so how did Jesus get raised up? I'd like to share my own thoughts about this. And as I said in an introduction, this is somewhat controversial because I haven't heard it from anybody else recently, except most recently, an individual named Richard Rohr, who I will, uh, well, somebody's heard of Richard Rohr, that's good, who I will say, which borders, I suspect, on some form of heresy, but most people, what everybody, what everybody who knows anything really about Jesus finds in common is his singular and familiar presence. Jesus is all about presence. And there were differing responses to the same thing, the presence of Jesus in his earthly life. Some people were attracted. They listened, they followed, they joined. Other people found themselves deepened. They pondered this new dimension of themselves that Jesus had revealed. Some were puzzled. This is pretty unique, what Jesus is revealing, his presence, that is. They wondered about it all. And finally, there were those who were repulsed and are still repulsed to this day. They felt threatened, they felt anxious, and they felt fearful about the presence of the risen Jesus. 
The presence of Jesus brought in itself on his earthly life a particular kind of experience. And that's the thing that most people had in common with Jesus. Attracted, deepened, puzzled, and repulsed by exactly the same thing throughout his entire earthly life. They got insight, they got healing, they got a new vision, they got a sense of fulfillment, they found themselves politically threatened, and finally, with death and burial, they expected that presence of Jesus to have ended. Got that? Jesus was dead. And then we read about resurrection appearances and the memory of Jesus and his special presence continued ongoing. Now, the thing that I'm going to say that borders on mysterious and heretical is that his special presence may or not have been Jesus. But there was something about what people experienced after his death that said he had risen. And exactly what had risen? Sometimes it appeared as Jesus' presence. Sometimes his presence appeared in an unfamiliar person. Same sense of presence didn't look like Jesus. Perhaps seeing is not always recognizing. The risen Jesus provided the same unique experience as the pre-risen Jesus, often in other people. Other people. Sometimes it looked like Jesus. Sometimes it didn't look like Jesus. The disciples on the road to Emmaus could spend a whole time with this total stranger, but didn't recognize that it was Jesus until he broke bread, as he had once done. Finally, they began to take a closer look at their inheritance of Hebrew Scripture, and they began to find in Hebrew Scripture, incognito, the same presence that they had found in their own lives. It appeared that the presence that Jesus brought with himself had always been in the world before he was born. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word is God. And then they found themselves experiencing the same presence they had known in Jesus after the death of Jesus. And it gradually dawned on them that they were dealing with a transhistorical reality. They were dealing with a presence that had been in the world from the beginning, in the life of Jesus, and after the death of Jesus. Christ never went away, was always present, was built into the world across time and across space. Here's the next heretical comment. I thought on that a long time, and as I became older, I began to wonder, as some of you may have, what is life after life like? What is life after life like? If you're as old as I am, you'll have to wonder about that for yourselves. And here's the leap of faith. I believe that life after life is in some ways like life before death. That, in a spiritual sense, the experience that death brings is the same experience that Jesus brought before he was born, 
during his life and after his death. The presence that was in Jesus is not only for this life, it's also for the next one. Will Jesus be present in his personal form in a body? No. Nobody's there. Nobody's there after death. When you're laid in a tomb or scattered on the ground, your body is all gone. But my most recent thought was that after you are gone, you encounter or experience the same presence that everybody experienced in the life of Jesus before his birth and after his death. In fact, I actually have an opportunity upon occasion to preach at memorials and funerals. And you know, they're called celebrations of life. My little sermon is called Celebration of Afterlife. Are you getting it? Is it dawning on you? The celebration of afterlife is encountering the same presence that you found before death. Never without history, always transcendent, there eternally. Now that's almost worth a celebration, isn't it? Well, now I take back take you back to history again. Uh, soon uh, the Hebrews were displaced from Palestine after the death of Jesus, 70 AD. Uh, the Romans conquered uh, Jerusalem, burned it down. The Jewish population was dispersed. It's called the diaspora. All over the Roman Empire, which is the Western world it was known then, the Roman Empire. There's actually a book that's been recently written called After Jesus, Before Christianity. After Jesus, Before Christianity. Anybody read that one? Uh-uh, I bet you haven't. There, you've read it. Here it comes. Some fairly offbeat scholars who were part of a Jesus seminar decided they decided that what they, Jesus had actually said they knew and what he didn't say, which was witness, they knew too. And so they began to wonder what happened after all, anyway, Roman Empire. And so the book, After Jesus Before Christianity, does research about what happened after the death of Jesus. Well, it seems that according to history, the Jewish population was dispersed around the Roman Empire as a result of the fall of Jerusalem. And gradually, as the uh, displaced Jews began to come, come in contact with Roman Gentiles, uh, they began to talk about Jesus. They talked about what they had known in the earthly Jesus. And you know what happened? The people that heard them began to see what others had seen during the earthly Jesus, the presence was still there. The presence had never gone away. It was always there from the beginning to the end, in life and after life. And that's what little groups that found, found themselves talking with uh, friends of Jesus began to discover. And experiences, they were what they call supper clubs. My parents belonged to a supper club. I don't think they talked about Jesus. But the disciples who were in supper clubs began to talk about Jesus. And these supper clubs were study groups. They were people who met together just to have fun and play good music. There were people who were there as academics, and they studied and talked together about what they learned. There were small business people 
There were traitors. There were military associations. There were friends among slaves. And they gathered in little groups. And some of those groups dispersed. And they went to other parts of the Roman Empire. And they started other little groups. And pretty soon the Roman Empire was full of Jesus groups. Subversive, wasn't it? And you know what they talked about? They talked about the presence they had known in Jesus. And you know what their friends discovered? They discovered in the talk about Jesus, the same presence that was in Jesus. Because Christ never went away. Beginning to end. And so the Roman Empire became filled with Jesus groups. That's how it happened. Well, uh, uh, over into the late second century, Romans who began, had worshipped the emperor, the emperor worship had provided coherence and organization and empire. Uh, Roman religion had done that, began to lose its appeal. It didn't work much anymore. And so along came another Roman uh, struggling to be the emperor whose name was Constantine. Constantine uh, decided that he was going to go to war with the usurper. They went to war before that night, before the war. Constantine reported he had seen a banner with a cross on it which says conquer in this sign. Constantine went out and he conquered in that sign. And so what happened was that Constantine uh, decided that the best unifying feature of the Roman Empire wasn't himself, but it was Jesus groups. They weren't called churches. They didn't have official people like me who are supposed to be more important or no more. Uh, uh, they didn't have any rules. They didn't have any buildings, no real estate development. Informal gatherings, little families. They weren't called churches. It wasn't called Christianity. It was just all about the risen Jesus and the presence that conversation about that presented to them. Well, around the year 325, Constancy decided we've got to make this official so that we'll have a new source of unity for the Roman Empire because I am obviously not it anymore. <clears throat> and so he called a council of members of Jesus groups at a place called Nicaea, and they organized themselves. And lo and behold, the risen Jesus became institutionalized. Institutionalized. Boy, that'll kill you, won't it? It sure will. As a matter of fact, this church was founded to be only partially institutional. And if you ever found a sense of that, that's because how it began. Because that was the vision at the founding. That there's something that's got to be a little more than institutional to make a group of Jesus followers a supper club. Be successful. Well, time went by from then till now. But the institutional experience began to limit the presence of the risen Jesus. The ones that the disciples had known in knowing Jesus. The disciples had known after the death of Jesus. The Romans began to know because talking with the disciples in conversation presented the risen Jesus to them as well. But then again, over time, there came in the last century of the century before the rise of scientific reason. It changed the meanings that the human mind could make. Human mind began to think more reasonably, began to be concerned about what material reality was all about, and it began to lose 
more and more of the spiritual dimension of human reality. Relationships began to become impersonal. They became instrumental. I'll do that. You'll do that. Instrumental. You know what that's like. That's all I could do in a deal. Coupled with radical individualism, resulting in what we currently call meism. When you got meism, you got other people, not another person. Other is not you. I'm me, you're other. Do you think that shows forth the presence of? Not likely. In fact, there's a good word for it now. It's called virtual. The risen presence was, and get this, never virtual. Never virtual. Always present in the form of a person. That person be the, could be the person you're married to. That could be the person who's your neighbor. That could be the person who's a friend. That could be the person you don't like, even. Everybody, without exclusion, has the possibility of bearing the same presence in the world that Jesus himself bore. And conversations about Jesus tend to represent that presence over and over. And that is what has kept Christianity going for a very long time now. But there are threats to it. First of all, you have informational technology. Uh, you have AI. What will AI do with what we know of Jesus? We have the distancing and the effects of the pandemic. People wear masks. You can't see the whole face. And so there has been a shift from virtual, personal to virtual experience. Virtual experience is becoming very popular now. Do you believe that the presence that was known in Jesus and has been known over these centuries can show itself virtually? I don't think so. It's got to have flesh on its face. It's got to have, it's got to have immediate uh, impact in the eyes and how people show themselves, the way in which they become the deepest selves to other people. You ever had that? <laughs> I have. I know it. I know it well. And so I want to conclude my Easter message with uh, about God raised him up. And I've been talking about how God raised him up. I want to conclude with a sharing of the Easter thought of Syria's Richard Rohr. Somebody's seen Richard Rohr. You've seen Richard Rohr. Richard Rohr had a very interesting uh, he does a blog, a daily blog. I read it. My wife reads it. Sometimes it's pretty good. Sometimes it's shallow. Sometimes I don't understand. But I read it just to see what will happen. Richard Rohr, however, is virtual. I have never met Richard Rohr, but I tend to like what he has discovered by being incarnational and not virtual. Incarnational, by the way, means in the flesh and bones. I once did an Easter sermon about where's the beef? Didn't get it. Okay. Where's the beef? The beef may be in front of you. You may be married to the beef. You may be doing business with the beef. You may be uh, a friend of the beef. You may be voting for the beef. At any rate, here's what Richard Rohr has to say in an article which was entitled on Easter Day, Seeing, Not Necessarily Recognizing. You've got to be able to recognize. And how do you recognize? You understand something about what to expect. And that's why it's valuable to know about Jesus of Nazareth. 
you know about Jesus of Nazareth, you know what the presence is like, and you know what it does. Then seeing becomes recognizing. But you have to be able to recognize. Otherwise, the resurrection is incognito, often incognito. Here's what Richard Rohr had to say briefly to finish a very long sermon, perhaps a radical. The core message of the enfleshment or incarnation of God in Jesus is that divine presence is here in us, in all of creation, in everyone, not over there, but in real, in-time, non-virtual reality. Christ is the light that allows people to see things in their fullness. The precise and intended effect of such a light is to see Christ everywhere else. A mature Christian sees Christ in everything, even nature. I don't quite get that. Sees Christ in everything and everyone else. This is a definition that will always demand more of us and give us no reasons to fight, exclude, <clears throat> or reject anyone. Oh, yes. Have you ever wondered why this particular building is unique? You see people's faces and not the back of their heads. Thank you for listening to this week's episode on An Episcopal Sermon Podcast. May this episode inspire you to apply lessons from these teachings to your everyday life. If you found inspiration in this episode, go ahead and subscribe to this podcast through the channel of your choice and spread the word. If you would like to see the full service from which today's sermon was drawn, visit our YouTube channel linked in the show notes of this episode. If you would like to support this podcast, feel free to donate any amount to our listeners' support on Anchor or visit the donation page on our website, www.churchinalmaden.org slash donations. Thank you.